Good morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 12. And once you are there, hold your place and then go with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. By way of introduction to Nehemiah 12 this morning, we want to... We want to consider a truth that in the human vernacular is well well used, but it flows from the testimony of Scripture. Look with me at Matthew 7, verse 16. Matthew 7, verse 16. You will know them by their fruits. We often would say this, We always say this text in in a way maybe like actions speak louder than words. Or walk the talk. Don't just talk the walk. And the context of Matthew 7 verse 16 is, is in one of identifying those who are on the straight and narrow. Which you see back in verse 13. And that the ones that are on the broad road are leading to destruction and Christ is exhorting those that are his followers and the light of scripture to look at the fruit of their lives if you have bad fruit it's coming from a bad tree grapes can are not produced from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles a good tree cannot produce bad fruit and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit and in Matthew 3 John the Baptist warns the Pharisees and the Sadducees that we are to bear fruit or they and we can take the exhortation as well to bear fruit in keeping with repentance but look with me at Matthew 7:24 Actions speak louder than words. And when we get to Acts, Matthew 7, 24, on the, the, the teaching here on the two foundations, we oftentimes look at this and we, we take the lesson that it is, we're being taught that those who have their foundation upon Christ, the immovable rock, that when the winds and storms and howling rain of life come against that firm and steady rock, you will be immovable and unshakable, and that those who are not on Christ will have their foundation eroded as they fall away under the test. And that is a certainly a true statement and could be extrapolated from Matthew 7.24, but to do so would be to do so in detriment to the main point of the passage. And look with me at verse 24 again. Therefore, whoever, everyone who hears these words of mine and, and if you mark in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline this word, an axe, A-C-T-S, an axe on them, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, what words is he speaking of? He's speaking of words in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, just completing the Sermon on the Mount. For us, as New Testament believers, we would be understanding that we could take all of his words, all of scripture, and understand the vital importance that we are to hear these words, hear the words of God in our lives, but that there should be action that should come forth from what we are hearing. Actions speak louder than words walk the talk not just talk the walk by their fruit you shall know them 
what we do in life, the actions that we have, are really and probably one of the only evidences that we really truly have of what we value, of what we enjoy, of what we love, of what we treasure, of what we believe, of what we prioritize. That's the evidence. And when we seek for God to do a work in our lives, we should come with that seeking that there is an expectation that as God moves upon our lives, there's going to be change. Actions are going to change. There's going to be actions that show good fruit. Now turn with me over back to Nehemiah 12. By way of introduction, understanding that our actions speak louder than our words, we now come to a point in Nehemiah 12, verse 44, where the, uh, the dedication of the wall is, is ongoing. You see that in 44, on that day, meaning on the day that there was this dedication happening. The dedication was on the completion of the wall and accompanying that dedication was this grand celebration with choirs and everybody was there. And Paul well noted last week that our lives are oftentimes marked less by celebration of the faithfulness and provision of our God and more about how quickly we move from one thing to the next, rarely, if ever, pausing to give thanks and celebrate the work of God in an area of our lives in which we have sought him quite earnestly. And we would do well, as Paul uh, explained last week, to follow the example here in Nehemiah, to pause often, more often than not, and celebrate the faithfulness of God in our lives. We are a people that are oftentimes governed by our emotions. You all would all be familiar with what we would term as the spiritual high. You go to a retreat or some sort of conference or maybe a missions trip and you come back and you're, you're on fire, as we would say, for Christ and you're, you're so excited about what God is doing. And then we so often wonder that emotion quickly eroded away and two weeks later, maybe at best three or four, you find the emotions are gone and really nothing has changed and everything is back to the same. Now hear me clearly, I'm not saying anything is wrong with emotions. If they're governed by the truth of scripture, emotions are natural things, they are God-given, they are designed and are in reflection of the God who created us. But our sin nature has corrupted those emotions. And we oftentimes use the emotions as a judge of our faithfulness and devotion to Christ rather than by our actions and whether our actions are matching up to the truth of Scripture. And this passage here in Nehemiah 44 through 47, I believe, has been given to us by the Holy Spirit to counteract the false teaching that we measure our faithfulness to God by our actions, by, excuse me, by our feelings and emotions rather than by our actions. If you want to put a title to this lesson this morning, I would title it The Evidences of Faithful Worship. The Evidences of Faithful Worship. And in this passage, we're going to see three evidences that are marks of those who are seeking to faithfully follow Christ. Or you could also say that these are three evidences that will be marks of personal revival. Or you could also say that these will be evidences or marks of 
as exemplified by the nation of Israel, national revival, and that we can look for these three things to be marks or evidences when by God's grace the the United States of America returns to God in revival. Let's look at these three. Verse 44. On that day, men were also appointed over the chambers for the stores, the contributions, the first fruits, the tithes, to gather into them from the fields of the cities the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who served. This would be my point number one. The first evidence I can see here of personal or national revival or faithful walking to Christ would be joyful giving. Joyful giving. We spend money on what we enjoy and like. And I shared two weeks ago of a story uh, in my time in college, and I'll share another one. I found one time at the end of one semester, I decided, or end of one year, I decided to add up all my expenses, looking to kind of trying to control my expenses. I thought, well, I'll just run every number uh, from my bank statements and such to see what I spent all my money on this year. And I determined that there was two things I really enjoyed, LaMadeline's and Starbucks. Because, man, those things far outweighed everything else. Now, I greatly enjoy LaMadeline's and Starbucks and nothing's wrong with enjoying LaMadeline's and Starbucks and if you take my point as being something's wrong with those you miss it entirely my point being that you spend money on what you enjoy and my bank statements those years showed what I enjoyed and you will be able to do the same thing Uh, the pocketbook is really a pretty strong evidence of what you enjoy and I would encourage anyone in here to Take a good look at the pocketbook and take a glimpse of what you enjoy. Now with four children, I find out we enjoy food a lot in order to feed all the different little mouths, which is great and God-given. But you might be surprised at what you find at where you are spending your money or where that is going. Now, to turn our thought more directly to what is happening here in Nehemiah 12, we must ask ourselves the question, do our finances reflect that we enjoy the work of the Lord locally and globally and as shown in scripture, starting with the local church and then broadening out from there? And, and I, w- I, want to, I want you to note two things. Number one, that Nehemiah is appointing men in leadership to collect these things because it was the law of the land. And we are no longer under this same law as New Testament Christians, but we would be exceedingly wise to notice my second point in that part, which would be that, verse 44, Judah rejoiced, underlined, rejoiced over the priests and Levites who served. That is, they gave joyfully, they they greatly enjoyed, they were not under compulsion to do so, to the support of the temple and the work being done therein. Now, lest we get caught up in the vernacular of the Old Testament, Consider some of the teaching of the New Testament. And I'm just going to read some scriptures. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. Acts 20, 35. And everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. 
Luke 18, 22 and 20 through 24. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven? Hebrews 13, verse five. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. 1 Timothy 3.3, this in speaking to men that are to be in leadership in the church, not addicted to wine, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, I am not telling you that you would be in sin to not give a tithe to this church, because that's not the point I'm seeking to make here. The point being that an evidence of one seeking to faithfully follow God will be that they will joyously give to God's work locally and globally and as shown in scripture it starts in the local church and then goes out it's not that we are in sin by not giving although pause you could be if that money that you don't want to give has become an idol but the point being hear me very clearly here from scripture that you are missing out on a great blessing David Murray is a pastor and professor and author and he gives 10 reasons why it is more blessed to give than receive. And for the sake of time, I won't give all 10. I want to give four. But he has some really important points. And these would be the positive side of what the enemy would want to call negative. Negative being, man, I don't want to have to give. But these would be the positive. Quote, giving submits to God's lordship. Giving submits to God's lordship. Every act of obedience recognizes that there is a higher authority in our lives, that there is a Lord over us who is entitled to honor and respect. Due our, to our temperament, personality, or circumstances, we may find some commands relatively easy to obey. Our submission is really tested in the areas where our own nature and situation make obedience more difficult. For most of us, money is one of these areas. Thus the reason for Luke 18 where he's talking to the rich young ruler. Number two, giving exhibits God's heart. You want to exhibit God's heart? Be a joyful giver. God is the giver of every good and perfect gift, James 1.17. Giving illustrates God's salvation. Giving illustrates God's salvation. At the heart of the gospel is sacrificial giving, John 3.16. That's why when the apostle Paul wanted to encourage the Corinthians to give more, he pointed them to the person and work of Christ. 2 Corinthians 2.9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And lastly, giving praises God's character, giving praises God's character. Giving in a right spirit is an act of worship. It is rendering him a tribute of praise. It is saying, you gave me everything and here is a small expression of my gratitude and praise for all your good gifts, unquote, David Murray. 
Many have, uh, it's well documented, abandoned their giving to the local church in favor of the 501c3 or the missionary or the kids club down the road. And I'm all in favor of supporting these type entities, especially the ones that are promoting the gospel. But scripturally, when it's happening to the detriment of the local church, we have to realize that what we're doing is undermining those other entities. Because the church, especially the local church, is supposed to be the pillar of truth. It's supposed to be the the voice in that community for what is true, for what is right, for what is God-honoring, for what is evil, for what is wrong. And if the church is unable to do that and is abandoned physically and financially, we leave these other entities that we have chosen elsewhere to support cut off from a lifeline and eventually over a period of time, they will come to eventual decay and probably some sort of dying out of the ministry because there's nothing to support them and call them to what they should be doing faithfully. To such an extent that scripture shows back in Nehemiah 11 that the importance of provision for the local church was of such a state that the opposing kings issued decrees and commands that the proper supply should be given to the church so the sacrifices would not end. Why? Simply because if the worship of God in the local church is not the main priority and comes to an end, the people of God will lose their main focus and subsequently fall away from the Lord. And that's exactly what we have in America. The church has not stood strong. The church has gone weak. People have gone out. People have not supported her, have not called themselves to the careful, loving care of the bride of Christ and she has grown weak and people have just drifted naturally with it. And less this point sounds self-serving that you might write the check so I can feed the kids. <laughs> I, want, I want to point clearly to Scripture, the understanding of the jealousy and love that God has for His bride, us, the local church. He desires for her to be pure. He desires for her to be cared for and provided for. Just like just like a good husband should, should do this with his wife, he desires that she should be seen as important, cherished, loved for, and have a rightful place as his bride. And when the church, the bride, is not provided for, she will inevitably grow weak in leadership, which you see in Nehemiah 12, and the nation will correspondingly grow weak and drift from God, which is why Nehemiah is lifting these men up to be in leadership and to have them provided for so they continue to lead these people in the way that they should go lest we drift from God. Actions speak louder than words. And does your pocketbook, does my pocketbook reflect the fact that God controls our finances and we would joyfully, not under compulsion, but joyfully desire to use what he has given us to the furthering of his glory? Or does the pocketbook reflect something else? Joyful giving in closing of this point, to God's work is an evidence of personal revival, national revival, and faithful devotion to Christ. Very clear in scripture. Point number two, 
joyful giving, point number one. Point number two, continual repentance. Look with me at verse 45 of Nehemiah 12. For they perform the worship of their God and the service of purification together with the singers and the gatekeepers in accordance with the command of David and of his son Solomon. Look with me at the word worship there in 45, for they perform the worship of their God. Your Bible may have a little note off to the sides. It said, worship is translated service. The Hebrew word is mishmethrath, which means to guard, to charge, function, obligation, to service, or watch. In essence, actions speak louder than words. That this was not simply worship as coming and singing, but that there was going to be something visibly done in this service of purification. In fact, if you look at verse 45, it says worship of their God, service of purification. That word service is the exact same Hebrew word as the word worship a few words before it. The signs of our worship to God will be seen to others, seen by others. Thus, you came this morning to a worship service. You came to show the world by your evidence of being here, that you are here to worship God, that you are here to worship him above all else. That's why we call it a worship service. Not just we come to worship, but you came to a service. You came came physically to have actions to your worship. As Christians, we we often, in the, the point being here, of this service of purification, we oftentimes think of repentance and a conviction of sin is to be done over something that is really uh, more public. And that, that's really a, a sign of pride because we would think, well, you confess sin, you repent of it, and if it's going to be a national revival, these are going to be big sins. They're going to be adultery. They're going to be uh, addictions. They're going to be lying, habitual lying. You know, they're going to be business, corruption of business, there can be big, big things. And that may be true. But we do so at the detriment of understanding that then we say, well, you know, it's just, just a little gossip. Okay, okay I struggle with this, just a, just a little, little bit of a harsh word there. A little pride, a little selfishness. It's really nothing to worry about and certainly nothing that should require any sort of humility or, you know, real confession of sin here or any sort of repentance. I, I just kind of slipped up. We've got to be very, very careful when we come and we view sin in that light because it becomes the grace of God being a license to sin. We, we begin to subconsciously think, well, I'm going to fight, I'm going to fight. Oh. But, okay, but if I give in, I know God's going to forgive me. Well, yeah, of course he will. First John 1, 9. He is faithful and just to forgive us for our sins for as we confess them. But, but a person who's thinking that way is already halfway given up to the sin anyway. Okay, if I give up, I know this is going to be the safety net. Yes, it will be. But that's not the way we are to think about it. We're to fight the good fight of faith. We're to lay hold of Christ and hold on strongly. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer really has entitled this view of sin uh, being really, you know, big ones, we view the big ones as, as bad, but we view the little ones as kind of inconsequential. He, view, he titles this cheap grace. Quote, cheap grace 
is the deadly enemy of our church, bringing broad the church of Christ, the body of Christ. We are fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. Is that true? No, it's not. It came at a great price and a great cost, the death of Christ. The essence of grace, continuing the quote here, we suppose is that the account has been paid in advance and because it has been paid, I'm going to repeat this again, the essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account, meaning our account before God, has been paid by Christ in advance and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Thus, I can do what I like to do. Cheap grace means grace is a doctrine, a principle, a system. It means forgiveness of sins proclaimed as a general truth, the love of God taught as the Christian conception of God, and intellectual assent to that idea is to be held of itself sufficient to secure remission of sins. I mean, it's just an idea. In such, a church in the world finds a cheap covering for its sins. No contrition is required still less any real desire to be delivered from sin. He continues here, cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Cheap grace meaning actions speak louder than words, meaning you can't just say it and it's done. There's going to be change. Cheap grace, grace alone does everything they say and so everything can remain as it is or as it was before. All for sin could not atone. Well then, Let the Christian live like the rest of the world. Let him model himself on the world's standards in every sphere of life and not presumptuously aspire to live a different life under grace from his old life under sin. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate, unquote. Point being, it is not a freedom to do what we desire to do, but that the person that is seeking to be faithful to the Lord is going to view small or great by the horizontal viewing of sin. He's going to view it all of it in the light of the cross and realize this put him on the cross. I must hate it. I must repent of it. And I must continually on a daily basis purge myself of these sins by his grace and through his power alone in order that he might gain glory. God is jealous for the purity of his bride, the church. But as modeled by Nehemiah, once mercy is shown and shown by God leading to repentance, we must not exercise cheap grace. We must be about the service of purification, continual repentance We must be about the hatred of sin and the joy of knowing Christ. Point one, joyful giving. Point two, continual repentance. These things being signs of personal revival, national revival, and faithfulness to Christ. And point three would be commitment to private and corporate worship. Commitment to 
private and corporate work, worship. Look with me at verse seven, 47. So all Israel, and I would note all Israel, gave the portions. And verse 46, for they, meaning the leaders there, performed the worship of their God and the service of their God. And evidence of a faithful devotion to Christ will be a commitment to private and corporate worship. And notice I did not say a love for private and corporate worship. And I did so on purpose because we have a principle here and the principle would be of appetite. If you'd have developed an appetite for junk food, you cannot expect broccoli, no matter the amount of butter you may put on it, to taste good anytime soon. You feed your soul the junk food of the world. You neglect your private and then corporate worship and it always starts privately and then goes corporately. You cannot expect it to be something that you love right away. Now, I would be one to tell you that you may very well upon repentance of sin here have a bit of a spiritual high and emotion that for a few weeks you really enjoy the word and corporate worship at, a, at church. But the question being, when the spiritual high is gone, what's left? Are you still committed? And don't get me wrong. I would also tell you that there is plenty of love for private and corporate devotion and plenty of joy to be found there but it's going to come after the appetite is reoriented. New Year's resolutions. You want to get in shape. You come out of the gate strong. Two, three, four weeks. You might make it two, three months. But it's not easy or fun and you're feeling poorly and your body's hurting. So what do you do? Well, most bail, but if you stick it out, what happens? Your body begins a change process and you begin producing something called endorphins and you actually begin to enjoy working out, as interesting as that may sound. But your body develops the ability to change its desires from not doing one thing to another, just as you can change your appetite from one type of food to another and develop one. You have to do that spiritually. But it takes time and the true test of whether or not it's changed inside your heart is if you're committed over a period of time. National and personal revival we've marked by a return to the bride of Christ, the church, and importance and love for the local church. We've looked at three evidences this morning of faithful devotion to Christ or three evidences a private revival or three evidences of national revival, but that has left, leaves us with the question, what about if these signs of faithfulness are not in your life or they are in your life less than you know that they ought to be, what are you to do now? What about if your pocketbook reveals some things that you don't want to have to address, different priorities? What about if you realize that you're viewing sin, probably small sin, in a very cheap way? What about if you have noticed that you are neglecting your private devotions or corporate worship? What's to be done now? Well, the wrong thing to do here 
would be to say, well, Cody gave me three points. I'm going to just begin doing every three, each one of those. Wrong. Those three points, joyful giving, commitment to, to private and corporate, and being able to, point number two, having continual repentance, those are outflow of a changed heart. So you can't start from the outside and say, well, I'll just start hammering all three of those and eventually the inside's going to change. No. They're outflow of a changed heart and we must start on the inward and allow those to be evidences or fruit of a changed heart. By way of application then, I think we can go to scripture and see some action points of how to develop that changed heart. Point number one for application, according to 1 John 5.21, we know that we little children... Uh, beware of idols. John Calvin appropriately said that the human heart is an idol factory. We produce idols. And point number one from Scripture would be to identify the idols, confess and repent. You, if you're not doing what you should be doing biblically in your walk with the Lord, it's because you're doing something else. And unless you change the something else, you're not going to be able to do the right thing. The majority of time we think, well, I'm over here. If I come over here and just begin doing it, that will go away. Yes, it will go away eventually, but not if there's first confession and repentance from it. And then you do. You go over here and you begin doing the right thing and you replace the wrong thing with the right thing. But it has to come first with confession and repentance. Otherwise, you're not abandoning your love for this idol that you have set up over Christ. Number two in the spirit of Ephesians 4, were to replace, as I just said, the wrong thought pattern or the wrong habit with the right one. Or, put it another way, we're to replace the thoughts of the old man or the habits of the old man with the habits of the new man that has been made new by Christ. But it's going to first have to come from identification, confession, repentance, and then replacement. And that replacement, number three, is going to have to require discipline. You're going to have to exercise discipline. I came across two or three weeks ago Warren Wearsby's quote on discipline or his definition of discipline and I think it's one of the best I've heard and this is what he says. This is what discipline is according to Mr. Wearsby. Doing the right thing in the right way for the, pri- for the right purpose when you are supposed to do it. Right thing in the right way for the right purpose when you're supposed to do it. That's discipline. And that's going to be over whatever you feel like you are doing. Christians orient their lives by the truth, not by necessarily how we feel. And that may require some accountability. Man, I'm just, I'm not finding my treasure in Christ as I ought. Would you help me here? Gaining some of that local church body to help you. Do we really want revival in this land of America? Well, let's turn it inward. Do I, do you really want revival within your own heart to God? Yes, we do. But, but do we really? Because I know in my own life, I have had times where I've had to face up to my sin. And in that facing up to it, I realized that there is going to have to be some humility here some reorienting of my priorities. There's going to be some pain involved. 
Maybe some tears. Maybe some embarrassment. Maybe some humility, some pain, some tears, some embarrassment on my part and on the part of loved ones around me that are going to have to come underneath the consequences of my sin. And I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life where revival in my heart has been postponed because though I wanted it when I came face to face, when the chips were down, it was more than I really wanted to give up. It was more than I really wanted to give up. But, 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 let me close, close with this thought. When we are, and this, this, is, this is one of the main points in all of the book of Nehemiah. When we are unfaithful, he is faithful. When we are unfaithful, he is always faithful. And God has shown himself to be faithful in this book when we so quickly become faithless. We turn and back to him and then we fall away quickly. But he's that loving heavenly father who disciplines his children so that we might be holy as he is according to Hebrews 12. He is steadfast in mercy and love. His mercies are new every morning. How great is his faithfulness. And we must be ever throwing ourselves at the feet of the faithful one and seeing once again his faithfulness that that allows us underneath his love to gain the strength by his grace to be faithful to him and to repent and to go through whatever it might need, whatever might need to be gone through in order to rid yourself of sin, small or great. His grace is more than sufficient for today and will be so forever and will be so for tomorrow. And we must be continually moved by his love for us upon the cross as exhibited by his son's death, that we throw ourselves at his feet again and again and again, pleading for that grace, pleading for his grace to draw us in repentance, going to scripture by that grace and being changed to be more like him. And he will do the work he has faithfully begun in us. But we have to do our part in his strength. It's not just him working in us. He is the power that will do us, but he also requires for us to be faithful as well. He is going to be faithful in us, but because we have been designed to be like him and to walk in his ways and to be like Christ, we are also to be faithful. And when we do so, when we are faithful, there will be evidences. There's three of them that we've looked at this morning. There's certainly many others. And those evidences will cause us to be unlike those that are around us. And God oftentimes, this is what he oftentimes uses as the attractive drawing point to bring others to himself. When you're in the world and you are different, you will be attractive. It's an anomaly. But there will be an attraction. It may not be an attraction in the beauty sense. It may not be an attraction in the lovely sense. But you will be different and your, their eyes will be attracted to that. And God oftentimes uses that difference. As Martin Lloyd-Jones has well put it, it's when the Church of America is much more different than the world is when it becomes most lovely and most attractive. And as we would faithfully by his grace, throwing ourselves in repentance, in joyful giving, in, in repenting of our sins, and through that repentance and through that walking faithfully with him, showing the evidences of that joy in him, 
those evidences will, by his grace, he will use them to draw others to himself, which is, which is one of the things we are here to do. Not just give him glory, which is the overarching principle, but to, to make disciples, to go into all the world and preach the good news. And we preach with our actions oftentimes more than our words. Actions speak louder than words. Are your actions, are they an exhibit of an internal heart that is faithfully devoted to the Lord or is there some work that needs to be done and as you by his grace and through his spirit do that work faithfully, then those actions can come forth for his glory. Let's pray. Almighty Father, we, we humbly cast ourselves before you Oh, Father, we have sinned. And we have not simply sinned by doing what is wrong. We have doubled down and sinned by viewing our sin as really not that at all. And Father, we pray that you would change us and Grant us repentance and open our eyes to those areas of our hearts, as Bob well put in first light, where there are little kings hiding in the, in the shadows, lurking there, that we must drag into the light by, by the word, the light of Scripture, and put to death. Father, may you grant us the boldness to to humble ourselves that we might not find we might not look to what what would be required of us if repenting of sin was to happen but we might look to the joy that comes in renewed fellowship with you when there is not that sin to hinder your work in us And rather than looking at what we have to give up and the pain we may have to go through in this nation to repent, may we look at the joy that is to come. May we look at the blessing that comes when we submit ourselves fully, privately, corporately, to your will and ways as defined for us by this this book, by your word, the Bible. Father, I pray for each believer that is here that those who are faithfully pursuing you, you might strengthen them in that battle and that they would continue to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And for those of us, Father, that have waned and we look and we don't see these fruits as exhibited here that should be there, that we would, we would mine the depths of Scripture. We would search our hearts faithfully. That you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law and understand what change needs to take place. And for those, Father, that are, are in denial to following you, have confessed you as Lord and Savior and yet backsliding and have no desire at this time to follow your will and ways. Break us, Lord, 
Do not allow us in your love, do not allow us to continue to defame your name. Defile it. Oh, but Father, would you in your love and mercy chasten us and discipline us as a loving heavenly Father does with those of us that are his children. And Father, for those today that may not know you or have begun to realize that they may have been talking some talk, but the heart has not been changed and has not been warmed to the truth of the gospel that you would open their eyes and give them grace upon grace to respond to that truth and come to you in confession, believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of their sins. Father, we, we thank you for scripture this morning. We thank you that even in the narratives and even in the historical passages we see here, Father, we can gain the truth that gives us the light to walk in ways that please you. Father, may this word be alive to us. May you give us the commitment to it, irregardless of the emotions toward it. And trust, Father, that as we would commit our way to you, you would trust, we trust, Lord, that our thoughts would be established. You would change our hearts and our thoughts. Our, our minds would be transformed by the renewing of the word in our minds, according to Romans And that we would once again find great joy and pleasure in drinking from the bread of life, from the wellspring of life. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray, amen.